0: was of the First Thessalonians, if you've got the Pew Bible today, we're going to be on page 1046, and uh, we're going to cover a lot of ground this morning, and I'm going to hit some high points, but if there's anything you have questions about or anything that we skip that you want to talk about, you can go to slido.com and type in RevCDA in the, in the box and uh, ask a question, and we'll take a look at that at the end. Let me pray for us. Lord God, thank you for um, this opportunity that we have to gather together, that we have all made it here uh, relatively healthy, mobile, and alert, uh, that you have um, you've given us as your people uh, your spirit. Uh, you've invited us to, to be a part of the work that you're doing in one another's lives, uh, as we build these relationships together, as we um, live out our faith as a community. God, I pray that you would give us awareness of that, um, those opportunities to be taught by one another, to, to speak into one another's lives, um, the power of your word. God, I pray for those that are not with us this morning. Some of some of us are, are having fun uh, running Bloom's Day. Uh, others are um, ill, uh, are struggling um, with various um, injury or, or sickness. And I just I pray uh, for your blessing uh, on all of those that couldn't be here this morning. And God, as we open Your Word, I pray that You would teach us, that You would speak to us by the power of Your Spirit. God, that you'd speak to us as a people, but you'd also speak to us individually, that you'd meet us where we're at. God, you know the things that we're bringing to this place this morning, the things that we're wrestling with, the sorrows of our hearts, the joys uh, that we're uh, living out. You know what we need. I pray that uh, you would just do a work. In Jesus' name, amen. So one way... To know that somebody loves you is that they get worried about you. This is definitely my dad's love language. He's not here today. He's he's one of the ones that's at home sick, so he won't be bothered by me talking about him. Um, As soon as I got a driver's license, uh, I would get regular contact from my father about road conditions. It could be the middle of the summer and he would call me and say, like, hey, make sure you drive careful. For years, every time it would snow, as an, as a, as an adult who was married, who had children of my own, I would get a text, hey, drive careful, it's snowing outside. Like, I'd, I'd never heard that before. And any, and I think he just, I think he just does it for myself and my sister. But, but now my oldest daughter gets the texts too. Um, hey, just be careful. Don't don't do anything dumb. He's just he's just so concerned. And and that's how I know that he cares, right? Like that's that's his expression of love for me. And because you don't you don't worry about people you don't care about. And while it's true that there's a kind of anxiety that is sinful and it actually betrays a lack of trust in God, we need to be careful of that. We all probably have more of that in our lives than we need. There's another kind of anxiety that is for the sake of others that is a real beautiful display of love. And that's, I think, what we see in Paul here in this text in Thessalonians this morning. Paul here is serving as an example to us of how we should view brothers and sisters in Christ, and also the value that we should place on being disciples. When I say the word disciple, maybe everybody kind of has a different context that they've been brought up in. And so disciple might mean a different thing to different people. Um, I know there, are, there were certain streams of the faith when I was young that kind of put a differentiation between disciples and Christians. Like you would become a Christian by accepting Jesus' work of, of, of sacrifice on your behalf and, and giving him your sins and, and, and you would become saved. But then there was this whole other category of like, would you want to become a disciple? And I don't think that's what the Bible is talking about when it says the word disciple. To be a disciple is to be a Christian. And it means to introduce people to and help them follow Jesus. This is what Jesus tells us to do right before he ascends into heaven in Matthew 28. He says, go and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. This is the job that we're supposed to be about. We are supposed to be disciples ourselves, and we're supposed to be making disciples. This is why the church exists. This is the mission of God for us. This, this crazy idea, and I, I always get just, it's so amazing when I think about it. Like, God is perfect and uh, omnipotent and omniscient. He's all the omnis. He knows everything. He's everywhere. He does. He's all powerful. And yet he goes, "Hey, you guys, you wanna, you wanna be a part of what I'm doing? Like I could just blast it from the heavens, the message of salvation in Christ. But I'd rather it come from all of you. This is so amazing that that we get that privilege to be a part of the work that God is doing. We're called to be and make." disciples. If you're a Christian here this morning, this is all of our jobs. We all have different roles to play in the body, and there's no cookie-cutter way to be a disciple or a disciple maker, but no one is exempt from this. There is no category of Christian in which you are not called to follow in Jesus' footsteps and invite others to join you. What does it mean to be a disciple? Bill Hull says it this way. He says, rearrange your life around the practices of Jesus seems pretty simple when you say it like that. But that's what it means to be a Christian. And if you're, if you're not a Christian here this morning, it's, you, may have, you may have encountered the Christian faith in such a way that you think that like, it's, you pray a prayer and then you go to heaven when you die. And unfortunately, that's been the, the, the fullness of the gospel in a lot of our conversation as a people for the last several generations. And that's, that's part of it, right? You, you pray a prayer, you have this connection with God, and, and the results of a relationship with Christ are that we get to be a part of his kingdom forever. But the focus of the scriptures is becoming a Christian starts now, and it's a transformation of your life that begins today today on into your life in the world. And as you experience this with Jesus, you share it with others. And so Paul is here doing this work, going around the Roman Empire, planting churches. And he goes to Thessalonica, and we've talked about this, and he plants this church with Silas and Timothy, and then he has to leave. And he he has this fear that the disciple-making work that he's been doing isn't done yet. He hasn't given the Thessalonians everything they need to walk with Jesus well. And I want to take a look at three things that this text brings out in my mind about the process of disciple-making and discipleship. And the first one this morning is that disciple-making and discipleship is targeted by Satan. Look at chapter 2, Starting in verse 17. But as for us, brothers and sisters, after we were forced to leave you for a short time, in person, not in heart, we greatly desired and made every effort to return and see you face to face. So we wanted to come to you, even I, Paul, time and again, but Satan hindered us. For who is our hope or joy or crown of boasting in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory and joy. In the CSB version, which I'm reading from, the the word that they translate forced to leave you is a Greek word that means to be made an orphan. And that feels a little weird for, for Paul maybe in this context, but in the Greek world that he lived in, to be an orphan could be a descriptor of a child who had lost its parents or parents who had lost their children. And I think the best way to understand that is, Paul, in this section of the text, while he's used a variety of metaphors to talk about his relationship to the Thessalonians, he's seeing himself right now as a parent who has lost his children, separated from them forcibly. Paul's team had to flee Thessalonica sooner than they would have liked. And they left the process of forming these young Christians in Paul's mind, too early, and he wants to get back. But he says, Satan hindered them. Paul is this church planter. He's doing this work of setting up little outposts of the kingdom of God all around the Roman Empire. And he has made himself an enemy of Satan. There's this fascinating story in Acts 19 Uh, where we read that some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists, these these Jewish people that, that were casting out demons for a living, they also attempted to pronounce the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I command you by the Jesus that Paul preaches. Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish high priest, were doing this. And the evil spirit, in this particular instance, answered them, I know Jesus, and I recognize Paul. But who are you? The man who had the evil spirit jumped on them, overpowered them all and prevailed against them so they ran out of the house naked and wounded. What a crazy story that is for so many reasons. But the one that I want to point out today is that the evil spirits knew who Paul was. He was creating such waves in the spiritual world that he was known to the forces of darkness. Paul's picture was on the most wanted board in the headquarters of Satan because he was an agent of Jesus forming disciple-making communities. Satan is ultimately responsible for getting them kicked out of Thessalonica, and Paul says Satan prevented them from getting back. I think this is really important for us to recognize. A vibrant church is dangerous to the powers of darkness. A group of people that have been radically rescued from sin and death, empowered by the Spirit of Christ, they are going to raise hell. And we don't, I think, take this seriously enough. According to some Barna research, six out of ten Christians don't believe that Satan is a real living being but just a symbol of evil. And there is lots of evil in in this world. There is evil that is just kind of the natural consequence of the fall. There is evil that, that broken, sinful, wicked human beings cook up on their own. But some of that evil is driven by an intelligent, malevolent being that wants the mission of Jesus in the world to fail. And if you are participating in that mission, there is a target on your back. Paul is doing everything he can to be about the work of Jesus, and he has become an enemy of Satan. And I just, I was thinking about it this week, how terrible would it be if Revelation Church was no threat to the devil? If we, if we gathered together and we sang our songs and we, we, we had our relationships and we met in, uh, you know, in different houses and community groups and we just did our thing and whatever we were doing was so unimportant to the kingdom that Satan was just like, yeah, leave them alone. They don't matter. In his book, uh, The Screwtape Letters, C.S. Lewis writes this in the mouth of Screwtape, the, the head demon. He says, a, moder- a moderated religion is as good for us as no religion at all and more amusing. What he means by that is like there are many, many ways that we can just be church people that, are, that is no offense to the enemy. That we can just go about our days believing what we believe and not actually gaining ground for the kingdom of God. But Paul wasn't like that. Paul made an enemy. John Chrysostom writes uh, 1,600 years ago, you too, when you are about to perform any duty for God, expect manifold dangers, punishments, deaths. Don't be surprised or disturbed if such things happen. Man, the early church was just hardcore, He says, hey, if you're going to get out there, if you're going to be about the business of the mission of God in the world, you need to expect resistance. You need to expect the enemy to come after you. We talked a little bit about this last week, but don't be surprised if as you seek to follow Christ and encourage others to follow Christ with you, that you meet resistance from the enemy. How did Satan hinder Paul? We don't really know. This is kind of a, a... A big question mark. Because there's some circumstances in Paul's life where where he attributes things to God. There's a a season before he gets to Thessalonica when they're they're in Turkey and they're trying to figure out if they should go north or south. And and he says that the Holy Spirit prevents them from going to these places. But in this case, he says, No, it wasn't God that prevented us from getting back to Thessalonica, it was Satan. It wasn't the gracious redirection of God in their circumstances. It was the belligerent attack of the enemy. Why did Satan hinder them? Paul and his team want to be with the Thessalonians. They greatly desire to see them. There were things that they wanted to teach them, and Paul's going to do some of that as we continue on into chapter 4. But in his mind, this face-to-face relationship was a priority. We read about it in, in, earlier in chapter two where Paul said, we cared so much for you that we were pleased to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives because you had become dear to us. And there is something about this connection in Christian community that Satan hates. I don't know about you, but if our family is going to get sick, it is going to be on community group night or the day before. Has that been in your experience that, man, I've got this really beautiful time of community with God's people set up. I made these plans. We're going to do this thing. It's going to be really beautiful and good. And now there's illness or injury or some other thing that gets in the way. Why? Because when we get together and we study the word and we pray and we confess our sins to one another and we love each other, the enemy hates it. 1 Peter chapter 5 says, be sober-minded, be alert. Your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion looking for anyone he can devour. I don't know how many nature documentaries you've seen, but if you've seen one, you've probably seen them all. (laughs) The lion, what does the lion go for? the gazelle that's off on their own, right? The one that's sick, the one that's injured, the one that's lagging behind, that's left the group, because it's easy prey. Can the enemy get you out of community? Can he get you separated from God's people? And church, I see this over and over and over again. Somebody gets disconnected from the body and becomes the prey of the enemy. And in all seriousness, this is why I get concerned by so many of you moving to Athol. (laughs) And I appreciate everybody has reasons for moving to Athol. But it's a long ways away. If you are somebody here that thinks that you don't really need other Christians, then you are in danger. You are in danger of being prey. Paul is eager to return to the Thessalonians, to be with them, to strengthen them, to share in the hope of their victory in Jesus together. And Satan pushes back. And he does this because discipleship and disciple-making keeps us faithful. Look at chapter 3. Therefore, when we could no longer stand it, we thought it was better to be left alone in Athens. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's coworker in the gospel of Christ to strengthen and encourage you concerning your faith so that no one will be shaken by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are appointed to this in fact, when we were with you, we told you in advance that we were going to experience affliction, and as you know, it happened. For this reason, when I could no longer stand it, I also sent him to find out about your faith, fearing that the tempter had tempted you and our labor might be, might be for nothing. Paul and his team, they left in a hurry. They weren't sure that the Thessalonians' faith was really that well-developed, and so he says when he finally couldn't stand it anymore, he sent Timothy back to strengthen them because he thought they might be struggling. Larry Shogrin, in his commentary writes that Paul and the team were deep, deeply fearful. Fear results from what might really happen, not from what cannot happen and is only hypothetically possible. Their anxiety is not due to some mere abstract conjecture. See, Paul really believed that it was possible for this brand new, young, fledgling church to lose their way to be harmed by the enemy to fall back into their old ways you know they'd left a whole system of life where they abandoned idolatry they had they had radically changed the way that they lived and it'd be really easy to just kind of slip back into their old ways Jesus has this amazing parable that is really helpful as we kind of discern this sort of thing in Matthew 13 He says, So listen to the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word about the kingdom and doesn't understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. This is the one sown along the path. And the one sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. But he has no root and is short lived. When distress or persecution comes because of the word, immediately he falls away. Now the one sown among the thorns, this is one who hears the word, but the worries of this age and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. But the one sown on the good ground, this is one who hears and understands the word, who produces fruit and yields some 100, some 60, some 30 times what was sown. And Jesus says the gospel is this seed that is sown and it is good and it is powerful and it is fruit creating but the soil that it falls on isn't necessarily ideal. And that there are some people's hearts represented by the soil that are not cultivated to receive the good news long-term. And while the Thessalonians had this radical experience of believing Paul's message, Paul is concerned that after they left, that they may have fallen away due to persecution, or the worries of this age, or worldly desires, all these things that Jesus throws out there. There's this this chance that they would have had this uh, really beautiful and amazing experience of faith initially, but that it didn't last. And Paul is concerned. He says, what if the same enemy that, that prevents him from coming back had destroyed the Christians at Thessalonica in his absence? and he couldn't stand it anymore. He sent Timothy back to the community to encourage them. Just as a aside, isn't it amazing how, like we, ha- we just don't have any concept of the lack of communication that these people suffered through, right? <laughs> like I left and I haven't been back and so nobody has any idea what's going on in that city. I get I get annoyed when people don't like reply to my texts within like five seconds. <laughs> you, I, you, it says it's delivered. It says you read it. Come on! But it's been a long time, and Paul is concerned. He says I can't handle it anymore. I got to send Timothy back. He he doesn't think his work has been done yet. The Thessalonians, Paul worries, may not be able to stand without help. And he sends Timothy back on a mission. And it's a mission that he actually gives language around later on in his relationship with Timothy. And in the last book that we know of from Paul that he wrote, 2 Timothy, he he encourages Timothy to do this. He says, what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, commit to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. This call to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2 is a four-generation discipleship process. Paul says, what you have heard from me, that's that's Paul. Paul tells to Timothy, hey, Timothy, tell this to faithful men, faithful people, that's the third generation, who are able to teach others also. That's the fourth generation. And this is this this idea of disciple-making that Paul is teaching Timothy as he walks along with him in this Mission team. And he sends Timothy back to Thessalonica to do just that, to be a disciple maker, to encourage these men and women in this city, to be a model for what they need to mature into. And Paul is concerned about them so much that he thinks that Timothy's presence is a necessary support for them in this time. Try to think of it like this. Um, some of you are in construction. Some of you are hobbyists like me. And um, if you're ever putting walls up, you have like two walls at a 90 degree angle, and they're like, they're nailed into the, the floor, but they're just still kind of free floating it's such a weird feeling. You get them, You need to get them plumb and straight and you're kind of holding them and they're all, they're heavy, walls are heavy. And they're wobbly and you maybe, hopefully you've got two people at my house, it's only ever me, so I'm trying to like use bungee cords and stupid things like that. But uh, they're all really hard to maneuver and you get them just right and you're holding them and it's like every muscle in your body is making sure these boards are steady and you get your nail gun and you fire that first nail and instantly that wall's not moving anymore. It just locks together. And you got to go through and put some more nails in it in case we have a hurricane. But there is something about these two pieces of potentially wobbly material that are not going to move once they're connected to each other. And this is what Paul wants to go back to Thessalonica for. This is what he sends Timothy for. You need to go back there because they need your help, because they're a little wobbly. They need some connection from you so that they can be sturdy. I was reading um, about the Tough Mudder race. You guys know what this is? It's like a like, dirty obstacle course race. And this guy, Will Dean, who came up with it, he, he says that Tough Mudder was built on the principles that the true prize is to cross the finish line together. It is nearly impossible to complete many of our obstacles alone, and this forces mutters to ask each other for help. And I think that's such a beautiful description of God's family, right? Like, we have been tasked with a mission from God that we cannot do by ourselves. You cannot faithfully accomplish the work of the kingdom in isolation. You are, you are missing things that are necessary that other people have. And we need one another to get the job done. John Chrysostom again, so many centuries ago, he who will not seek in the well-being of his neighbor, his own benefit will not attain to the crown for this reason. God himself has so decided that human beings should be mutually bound together. God has placed our benefit in the hand of our neighbor so that we will pursue one another and not be torn apart. He basically says the same thing. There is is something that is lacking in you that you need the rest of us for. There is something that is lacking in me that I need the church for. The Thessalonians, in Paul's estimations, they still need someone who is farther along in the faith to come alongside them and help them walk with Christ. And so he sends Timothy. And the truth is, we all need people to help us walk with Christ. I need you. You need me. We need one another. Bill Hall again says, people can't keep commitments to Christ in isolation. Much help is required if a person is to sustain a lifetime of commitment to Christ. And this is such an important warning for us. We need to be surrounded by other people that are calling us on to deeper and deeper levels of dependence on Jesus. There's a I think a helpful analogy, if you, if you light a coal, a single coal on fire, it will burn for a few minutes and then it'll fizzle out. But if you take a whole bag of coals and put them in the bottom of a barbecue and light them, they will burn for hours and hours and hours because they are connected to one another. I think we have to ask ourselves, Do we believe that it is impossible to follow Jesus without other people? Or do we just think, you know, people are nice sometimes, but I can do it without them? And it seems like Paul is is deeply anxious and concerned and that there's maybe this kind of uh, finger wagging, like, oh, guys, you got to be better. You got to try harder. But I think it's really helpful to understand the way he sees this process of disciple making and recognizes that making disciples and being a disciple is deeply joyful. Look at verse 6. But now Timothy has come to us from you and brought us good news about your faith and love. He reported that you always have good memories of us and that you long to see us and we also long to see you. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in all our distress and affliction, we were encouraged about you through your faith. For now we live if you stand firm in the Lord. How can we thank God for you in return for all the joy we experience before our God because of you? as we pray very earnestly night and day to see you face to face and to complete what is lacking in your faith. So Paul has been anxious and worried and concerned. He sends Timothy to kind of shore up the church. But Timothy brings back a report that they are thriving. They are filled with faith and love. Paul says that you have good memories of us. And that doesn't just mean that they like think about Paul and go like, oh, Paul. It means that they are thinking about the things that Paul has taught them and they are living them out. And Paul says that our whole life, for now we live if you stand firm in the Lord. His whole life is wrapped up in the Thessalonians. And you could maybe call that like unhealthy codependency but I think he would say, no, that's, that's pastoral care. That's what this man who has given his life over to Christ sees as the proper way to love God, to give his life over to these people. And this is something that, just personally, that I never realized that I would feel so strongly when I began pastoring this church. If you know me well, you know I live in my head. I very rarely feel my, my emotions. I think about them. I take them out of my heart, and I hold them up, and I just look at them. Um, so I'm working on that. That's that's. You can pray for me. But man, you all keep me up at night sometimes. Like when when I know that someone in this community is struggling, it hurts. Like I have all these prayer lists of of people that are that are. In various stages of affliction and 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 doubt and concern and despair. And it, it is so good when we flourish. It is so beautiful when there's something to celebrate, and there are so many things to celebrate, but it is also so painful when we struggle. Paul writes to the Thessalonians, or sorry, to the Corinthians in in chapter 12 of their first letter. Instead, God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the less honorable, so that there would be no division in the body, but that members would have the same concern for each other. So if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. This is the thing about how our body works. I think I've, I've mentioned to, to, to you guys that me and some other uh, members of our church community are, are running together. And Spencer Lambus and I ran yesterday. And like, it hurts your legs, right? Like, did you know this? <laughs> uh, and, and so this morning, like I'm walking around in pain. And it's not just, it's not just isolated to like my calf muscle, I'll step, and then my whole body goes like, ah! Because my body is a single organism, right? When one part of it hurts, all of it hurts. And this is what Paul says about the community of God's people. When one of us hurts, all of us should hurt. When one of us is honored, all of us should feel that. And Paul is overwhelmed with joy for how the Thessalonians are following Jesus. He is thrilled about this. And I just, I want us to be aware of that, that it is so easy. We've talked about affliction. We've talked about persecution. It's so easy to get down, right? If, if you're following Jesus and things are hard, it is really easy to get um, just depressed. And when we get depressed, when we get anxious, when, when it feels like life is too much, we turn inward we see our problems and it's not that those problems aren't real but if we are the, if we are a disciple making community if we are walking with Jesus together we have the opportunity to experience real deep joy as we see the fruit that God is creating in our lives and we aren't perfect we're all kinds of broken we we hurt one another and we misunderstand one another and we get all up in our heads and, and, and sin against one another. But the Spirit of God is among His church, mending us into something really beautiful. And it's really encouraging. Just, some, uh, just a few encouraging things. There's, there's a group of, of women enrolled in the Equipping the Saints program that are working on designing a document right now to help us be better missionaries in our city. Isn't that cool? There are some guys in our elder training program that are working on becoming elder qualified leaders for the benefit of their families and for this church as a whole. There's a dozen people that commit every day to pray for 45 different families in our church community. And that's, that's going up in this next season as we've added more people both to the prayer team and uh, families that we're praying for. Seven people every Sunday sacrifice their own Sunday experience to teach our children about Jesus. Like, I could go on and on and on about the beautiful things that are happening in this church. Speaking of our elders training group, a couple weeks ago, one of the discussion questions was was just, what what do you see in Revelation Church that you have to be thankful for? And we had to. Sh- I had to shut down the discussion because we just kept going and going and going. There are so many beautiful things that God is doing in this community as we walk with Him. And if this morning you're feeling like, man, I just don't see that, my, maybe my my challenge for you is that maybe you're not in far enough. You know, it's it's really easy. There's a lot of. Um, there's just there's a lot of cynicism about the church in our culture today, and it's really easy to like uh, get absorbed in that. I, ha- I share some of that c- cynicism, but if you get too wrapped up in what's wrong with the church at large, you will miss the things that God is doing every day around you. My friend Amy Hilliker says it this way, she talks about the church and she says, I want to be the one that carries her veil and wipes the smudges off her face. She's talking about the bride of Christ. And I really love that sent- sentiment when there's so many people, some, some who like professionally bash the church, like that's their job is to be out in the world talking bad about the church. And that doesn't mean that we're not broken and that there are some things that we need to repent of. But Paul hears a report from Thessalonica that the church is flourishing, and he rejoices in that. And I, I think we would be wise to take a cue from Paul there that we would be people that love Jesus' bride, that if if Revelation Church is your church community, that we would be people that love Revelation Church, that we would love all the people that are part of this community. And it's possible that because of where I am positioned in this body, that I get to see maybe more of the beautiful things than most of us. And I'm grateful for that privilege. But I hope that you see them too. I hope that you're involved relationally in the lives of others. I hope that you're a part of a community group that is, that is both weeping together over the hard things, but rejoicing together when God moves in beautiful ways. I hope you put yourself in situations and foster relationships in the church community in which you can say, just like Paul does, how could we possibly thank God enough for all of this? Let's do some QR. <laughs> I got find it. There it is. <laughs> What do you think a person should do if they see and heed Screwtape's comments to Wormwood if it's not moved to Athol? I don't know what that means. Let's go back to Screwtape's comments to Wormwood and see what we say. So Screwtape says a moderated religion is as good for us as no religion at all and more amusing. So for a long time, I'll I'll, I'll say this. For a long time, our country has both been blessed and cursed by having a just um, civic Christianity. And what I mean by that, for generations, it has been culturally um, advantageous to be a church person, to be a Christian uh, that it was just a thing that you did, by and large, in this country. And we've lived this way for generations. And again, that's a, that's a huge blessing. A lot of the freedom that we have, a lot of the, um, well, there's just hundreds of thousands of ways that the, ch- the church and its, its presence in the world has been a really beautiful and culture-shaping thing, and we should all be grateful for that. But the downside to that is that you could be a part of the Christian community on some level and not even, not even be saved, not even be a Christian, not even believe in Jesus. But then you could also kind of say, yeah, I'm a Christian, I believe all that stuff, and then just completely be disconnected. And as long as you were just kind of filling in the boxes and, and checking off the tasks to be a good citizen and to um, play your part, Nobody had any questions. But one of the things that the cultural moment that we're in today has done is it has revealed that as our culture continues to move away from that Judeo-Christian ethic that has been an assumption for so long and starts to do things that in many cases are just absurdly wicked and terrible and in other cases are just different and and strange and, and unfamiliar, It it places a gap between who who we are as as church people and what the world wants to do. And if we're going to be people that actually stand aside from what the world is doing and the way the world is going, we can't just pretend to be good citizens and check off the boxes. We have to actually begin to take Jesus seriously. And so... A lot of times we read about like the church is declining. People are leaving the church and and nobody ever wants that to be the case. But my gut tells me that the people that are leaving the church are the people that were just playing games the whole time. The people that weren't really serious about Christ and following Jesus and being a disciple and, and pursuing who he is and what he is about in the world. And what I think is happening, and again, its I don't want to rejoice in the cultural decline that we're seeing around us, but because of that cultural decline, what I see happening is Christians being called to actually take their faith seriously or to leave because it's not culturally advantageous as much anymore to be a church person. And so if you find yourself today, speaking of, of Screwtape and Wormwood, if you find yourself drawn to just, maybe I grew up in the church, maybe it's just, it's just such a routine for me, it's what I do on Sundays, I, my friends are in the church, it's, good, it's a good networking space for my business. If these are the reasons why you hang around church community, I would challenge you and say, you are no threat to the devil. Like, if you want to be somebody who just plays church, for one, it's going to be much harder to do that as the culture continues to say Christians are bigots and homophobes and whatever else. But secondly, you're not going to find joy. You're not going to find peace. You're not going to be fulfilled in your walk with Christ because you don't really have one. You're just pretending. And the point that Lewis is making in this satire is that the man or the woman that decides to follow Jesus and give everything that they have to that pursuit is the one that is going to find joy and fruit and is also going to be targeted by the enemy. And so if you are somebody who who feels like you're just kind of phoning it in, my encouragement would be don't. Stop doing that. Begin a process of spiritual discipline, being in the word of God, learning about what Jesus is really like. Begin a life of consistent prayer. Even if it's hard, find some people in this community who also think it's hard and do it together. Get involved in the ways that we have set up for you to meet people and grow deeply in relationships and community groups. Begin to serve and give and pour yourself out for others. Take Jesus seriously. Be about his business in the world. And that's the, that's the kind of person that will both um, register the ire of Satan, but also, more importantly, find fulfillment in joy in Christ. It's a good question. And you can move to Athol if you want, you just have to deal with the driving. <laughs> We're going we're to take communion and we're going to recite the Nicene Creed together as part of our, um, these rituals are our ways that we rehearse our allegiance to Jesus. If you're new to our church or new to um, the creeds of Christianity, the Nicene Creed has a few words in it that are strange to us. And one of the words that freaks people out is Catholic, and Catholic is a Greek word that means universal, and the, the Roman Catholic Church, if, if you're aware of, of, of them, they're the largest group of Christians in the world, uh, they just took that word as part of their name. Uh, we are not a Roman Catholic Church, but we confess in the creed that there is one Catholic Church. That means that there is one people of God. And there are many little expressions of that people, including the Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox Church and Presbyterians and Baptists and Methodists. And there are all of these different ways that we gather together under Christ. But there is one community, one global community that Jesus has called to himself to make disciples who make disciples, just like Paul called Timothy to do. And so as we take communion this morning, as we recite the creed, I want us to be reminded of that community. That's literally the same word as communion. I don't know if you've ever thought about that. It's the meal that we eat together. We belong to Christ and we belong to one another. And so as you come up to take the bread and the cup, we have juice and wine per the dictates of your conscience. Take it back to your seat as the band leads us in song. And I would just encourage you to to ask yourself, is that true for you? Would you say that you belong to these people that you are sharing the body and blood of Jesus with? Would you say that, yes, these are my people and if so, spend some time just thanking God for that. Be, take a, a page from Paul's playbook and just say, I'm so thankful for these people that you've brought me. But as you reflect on that question, if you can say, no, not really. Maybe, maybe I've, I've been in this community for a while and I don't feel like I know people. I don't feel like any of these relationships really matter to me. I would encourage you to ask the question, what needs to change in your life in order for that to be true? And ask God for the strength to make that change this week. So as we as we take communion, as we sing, I would invite you to, you, you're welcome to sit or stand or, or kneel at the prayer rugs. Um, but as we begin this time, let's all stand together and um, remind each other of the Nicene Creed. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and of earth and of all things visible and invisible. And in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, the one begotten from the Father before all the ages, light of light, true God of true God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, through whom all things came into being." who for us and our salvation came down from heaven and became flesh by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and became man and was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. And on the third day, he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father. And he will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead, whose kingdom will have no end. And in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and life giver, the one who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshiped and glorified, who spoke through the prophets. In one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church, we confess one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We expect the resurrection of the dead and the life of the age to come. Amen. Lord God, as we um, think through what it means to be part of this communion, as we take your your, your body and your blood in the bread and the cup together, as this line of people files down to take this, God, I, I pray that you would remind us of the joys of this community that you would remind us of the ways that we are both growing to be more like Jesus through others here and also the ways that we are helping others grow to be more like Jesus. And God, for those of us this this morning that that are maybe sitting here saying like, man, I just don't feel like I'm connected. I don't feel like I am a disciple. I don't feel like I'm making disciples. God, I pray that you would bring some clarity there and give people an action step, something that they know that they need to do and give them the boldness and the courage to do it this week. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to the Revelation Church Coeur podcast. Learn more about Revelation Church at RevelationCDA.com.